Hey guys, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to the audio version of the 100% Wild podcast. And today, Matt Drury and I are joined again by old man winner, Matt's dad, Terry Drury. And in this episode, we tackle a listener-submitted question about deer sign. In particular, we discuss what kind of deer sign matters, how to potentially set up on it, and a whole lot of other things related to scrapes, rubs, tracks, and, and a lot more. So really, I think we get into some very interesting things here that especially tie into what's going on this time of year, as many of us are kicking off our 2016 hunting seasons. So with all that said, enough of my rambling. Let's get right to this earlier recording. All right, welcome back to the 100% wild podcast i'm mark kenyon of wired to hunt and with me is matt jury of jury outdoors and again with us our special guest terry jury how you guys doing hello hello it's uh it's good to have you on the show again we we had a a fun chat here recently and today we've got another interesting listener submitted question this time about hunting versus on sign figuring out signs so some interesting things there but super quick before we get to that i'm just curious terry i know you've been hunting How's that been going so far? You know what? It's been going well. Unfortunately, the temperatures have dictated as far as, you know, what you're trying to hunt. And we're seeing some doe movement, but boy, the bucks just aren't moving at all. The cameras are, are pretty dead, and uh, we're not hearing any reports from, from too many people that are harvesting big deer. And uh, Mother Nature has a way of humbling you each and every day. And she's literally has taken phase one away from us here, stolen it. Uh, in the show 13, she's... Uh, you know, we like to incorporate her into the show each and every week, but boy, she's making it tough on us this year. She became the star of the show in yeah. phase one. <laughs> yes. D- did you get out at all, Matt? I- I've been out once so far. I, I just I just don't have the white- right wind direction for the lease that I hunt. A, a southerly wind is like the worst wind I could possibly get. Um, so I just I don't want to get in there. I-, I have some great pictures. I've been getting great pictures. Uh, so far, all summer, and even some daylight leading into the season, and we had a strategy. We, you know, we have a lot of standing corn there that wasn't cut yet, so we went in and and had the farmer cut about a quarter acre of it. We set up a ground blind, and we were all ready for opening day. And then the winds changed. We didn't get the right wind we we needed, and and I think it was something like four or five days till I got in there for the first hunt and I haven't been able to get in there since. And it's going to be another five or six days till I get a uh, northerly wind uh, to get into that spot. So, um, so far, you know, it, I think we're going to have a good season there. It just, I haven't wanted to mess it up. And with the hot temperatures, one thing that Mark and dad always kind of tell me, even though you might be eager to get in there, don't, don't uh, blow your hand, you know, just right out of the gate. You got a lot of season in front of you. So, you know, been eagerly awaiting to get in there, but waiting for the right time and, and, and trying to practice patience. Yeah, that's tough to do. It's, it's tough, especially because last year, I think for a lot of people in the Midwest, we had great weather in some of these early season periods. You know, I remember last year, that last weekend in September 1st, beginning of October 1st, we had a really good, good cold front hit across, I think, even by you guys too. And Man, that was great to have. It made for some really terrific early season hunting, and it just does not seem like we're going to get that lucky this year. But uh, trying to be patient, like you said, I actually, and I was telling you guys off air, my number one buck in Michigan just showed back up this year, and I've seen him twice during daylight now in the last three days. So hope that in 10 days he'll be, in, he'll be doing the same thing. Are you just in, you know, are you in an observation spot, or how are you seeing him in daylight? Yeah, so I can observe from the road up on a hill. 
so I can just glass over there. And I've got a food plot back in there that's tucked in between two little areas of bedding cover. And based on kind of all the things I've been learning over the last year and a half, he beds in one of these two regions based on the wind direction, I think. Um, so if I can watch that food plot, that food source I put in this summer, eventually I'll hopefully see him come out of one of the two areas. And so I've been trying to get out there as much as I can to see, okay, like how consistent is he with this? You know, is it only when we're getting good cold front or is he only coming out when there's like the right moon or something like that? Or can I count on him showing up on opening night no matter what? That's kind of what I'm trying to decide is figuring out, do I hunt that first night regardless um, or not? Because I've got a good setup now for either wind, north or south, you know, whether it be northwest, southwest, etc. So I just need to kind of fine tune that strategy a little bit and I got about seven days to do it, so. Well, good luck. The chess match is the fun part, right? It sure is. So uh, speaking of the chess match, though, we've got a question from a listener that is all about one of these pieces of the puzzle when it comes to this whole figuring it out type of game that we play as deer hunters. So what do you guys think about getting right to that? Let's do it. Absolutely. Hey, guys, this is Bobby. I'm from Kirkwood, Missouri. I'm a whitetail bow hunter, and my question is in regards to how to identify sign that's hot when i'm trying to find a good tree stand location um so number one how do what sign am i looking for and number two how do i tell if that sign is hot i just want to be sure that that i'm giving myself the best opportunity to kill that mature whitetail buck by sitting over sign that is hot versus cold so my um hunting style is a pack in pack out style approach so i go into the woods with my hang on stand on my back and I want to be able to identify hot sign, hang my tree stand, hunt when I'm done, take it down, put it on my back, and head back to the truck. So any help you guys could uh, give is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for your help. Bye. All right. So this is a tough one, Terry. I know there's lots of different opinions on sign, how important it is, how to verify you know, what you should hunt, what you shouldn't. What's your take on all this? Well, you know, sign is one of those things that everybody loves to see it, uh, but it becomes sometimes a, a challenge to interpret it. And uh, one of the things that we look for are active scrapes. You know, you can see active rubs, and when you see a rub, you don't know whether it was a two-year-old or a five-year-old that made the rub, depending on the size of the tree, obviously. But with a scrape, you know, there's there's usually uh, maybe just some perimeter scrapes and some that are, that are happening at nighttime. And then there are some that are deep into the timber that maybe we call them a big hub scrape or a wagon wheels type spoke scrape where almost every deer in the timber comes to that particular spot. So being able to identify those is not always the easiest. You know, and rub lines, years ago, we used to study rub lines and you'd see those coming to and from. And it really depends on the time of the year. You know, is it is it the peak of the rut? Is it early season? Is it late season? Because early season... You know, when they're just starting to feel their weedies a little bit, you'll see a little bit of, of rubbing, uh, kind of some some rubbing that's insignificant. But as the rut starts to near, that rubbing becomes a little bit more important, uh, particularly if they're in their bedroom. You know, when they go through the velvet phase and they start shifting around, they change their bedroom just a little bit. They may move, you know, one mile, three mile, five miles to get to where they're normally going to spend the, the rut. And uh, that can have a big bearing on it, too. But once they finally get to their spot... Then all of a sudden they range, but they don't range very far. So you start seeing rubs pop up on faint trails, not real, real heavily defined trails, but faint trails. And you can tell when they're going from bed to feed, feed to bed. 
Well, as, as the rut starts to get a little bit closer, you know, the sign starts to expand a little bit because they start to expand their home range just a little bit. So you got to be able to interpret that sign and determine, number one, where he's betting and where he's feeding. And uh, if you got, you know, a green food source all summer long, whether it's standing soybeans or maybe even a standing cornfield that they're using for a bedroom, you're not going to see a lot of sign. Not until, you know, the beans defoliate and the corn is shelled and they head into the timber. And that's exactly what we're experiencing right now. You know, the, the hot temperatures here in the Midwest, man, those beans are, are turning yellow rapidly. And all of a sudden, every farmer is out there with a combine shelling corn and getting it loaded up. So the bedrooms are cut in half. Well, all of a sudden, they make that big move. When they do that big move, you have to have an area for them to transition to. You have to have a green food source, whether it be uh, Clover Plus or, you know, winter bulbs and sugar beets or radishes. You know, you got to have a, an alternate food source for them to move in on. And you don't want them to have to move very far. And that's exactly what we do. And that's when you start seeing sign pop up in and around those food sources. Because as the rut nears, you know, you're going to see that stuff along the edge. And you're going to see those, you know, those little small scrapes pop up. But the big wagon wheel hub spoke scrapes are the ones that you're looking for. And if you can hone in on a few of those, depending on when, the, when, when you're at or where you're at in the rut cycle, uh, that's important. So, okay, I want to ask you first about rubs. There's a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> no, it's good. With, with, when it comes to rubs, would you ever actually set up on a rub line as like a piece of sign, especially like if you're in a new spot maybe? I know in your situation, like you, you know where the food sources are, you know where the bedding areas are, but let's say you're on a new property, you come across a rub line. Are you going to use that as a, I'm going to hunt right here, or do you just use that as a part of like your intel that says, okay, I'm seeing rubs here, I'm seeing rubs here that would indicate that maybe there's buck bedded there and then, you know, formulate a stand strategy based on that. How do you actually take action off of a rub in that situation? You know, I would, I would try and use that number one in conjunction with structure. How is the property laid out? You know, is it a hilly terrain? Is it relatively flat? Is it rolling? And, and then in addition, I would use the rub lines with the scrape lines because I think that tells a story, but you got to kind of put the two together to uh, try and interpret exactly what's going on there. But the rub lines you're going to see here early season are going to be going from food to bed and bed to feed. And there may be a scrape or two along the way. And one of the things that we like to do, or I do particularly, and, and again, this is not the final word on how to go about it. Uh, we're just saying what works for us. But I build a lot of mock scrapes. And if they can start going to a scrape early, we're to the point where we'll take a battery-operated weed eater out there and literally take this time of year because we've had an inordinate amount of rain here this year for whatever reason, but the weeds are four foot tall. Well, not only are deer creatures of their nose, but they also use their eyesight. So if they can lay an eyeball on a scrape from a distance, they're going to go right to it. So we take a weed eater out there and I build mock scrapes the size of a pickup or bigger dump truck just so they can see it from a distance and then go to it. And I'll do that maybe along a field edge or maybe some place that you're going to be hunting. And then we'll also go down along an edge and get rid of those other overhanging limbs where they're going to build their own scrape. So you're trying to direct that traffic just a little bit. So being able to take a rub line in answer to your question and make it work with a scrape line and then make that work with the type of terrain you're on, all of those elements have to be rolled into one. And then you got to try and uh, understand what you're looking at and make that make that decision as far as the chess match that Matt refers to, 
take that information, process it, and say, where is he betting? Where is he feeding? Particularly if you're going to a brand new spot, the last thing you want to do is go in there and tromp it all up and deposit a bunch of cents. So you may want to look at it from a distance. But those little rub lines tell the tale early. So in the early season or even, you know, the end of the summer, is it pretty rare to start seeing scrapes? No. no. Actually, I was changing flashcards this morning, and uh, I was seeing some pretty fresh scrapes already. You know, when we waxed that full moon, it was the harvest moon, but it waxed full here just recently. And uh, I was seeing several scrapes, which is a little bit early. Usually I, I don't see them pop up until a little bit later, but I'm seeing quite a few of them here. And even as warm as it's been, it's uh, a little bit startling that we'll see this many scrapes this early. So uh, it's not uncommon. And the best way to get information, you know, we didn't have this luxury years ago where interpreting sign was so important. Now you have the luxury of a trail camera. If you don't have a, a, a reconnex camera on a scrape or on a rub line, it's the easiest way to document the information and take that information and process it. Well, that's kind of what I was getting into. So early August, we went in to plant our biologic plots. And um, we, we were coming down this. It was on the south end of our property. We got a box blind. It's set up over an ag field. And at the very bottom, we have a tree stand and our, and our food plot. And on our way down to it, I saw what I thought was a scrape. And like I said, this is the first week of August. And I saw the scrape. It was probably about, I don't know, three three feet you know, wide. And uh, Aaron Bennett was like, he said, that's not a scrape. There's no way. That's an ant, you know, anthill or something. And I'm like, I'm telling you. I said, look at it. That's a scrape. And so we, you know, we went about our thing. We plant our food plots. And I come back in about two weeks later. And I had gotten a lot of good pictures down on the food plot where I had my camera. And I went in there to change the cards or whatever. And, and um, I, I went by this spot again, but on the other side of the fence. So I wasn't driving over the top of it. And I looked at it and I was like, it's, it's still there. It's getting bigger. So I put, and there were uh, some overhanging limbs right there. So I put a camera on the tree right next to it. And Bennett, he said, no way, no way. And sure enough, couple weeks later, I come back, change the card. There weren't many pictures. There was only like 45 pictures, but it was two of the four shooters that we have. And, the, you know, so I don't know. I, I know it was early, but it to me, it was interesting that, you know, it was something that normally I would have done in late October is moved to, a, you know, a scrape, but was doing it here in August to see what deer are using that area. And sure enough, it was a deer that was coming from bed and going to food. And vice versa. Well, and you know, you know, if you're hunting public ground, some sometimes you don't have the luxury of leaving a camera, obviously, because you're worried about getting it stolen. But they do make apparatuses now that you can, you know, fasten it to a tree and lock it in there to where it takes an awful lot of effort for somebody to steal the camera. But if you have the luxury of putting a camera up, you just learn so much information, just like what you did there, Matt, you know, putting it on a tree. And you and I have not talked about this, but Getting the picture of, of two big deer early season like this is telltale. At least you know they're in your area. That's the cool part. Uh, you know, if you don't have one, you're you're just waiting. It's the waiting game, trying to hope like, you know, that they're going to move in there at some point. But uh, having them is the is the first part of the battle. And and the cameras are are so easy now. And there's such a wide variety of cameras out there. You can spend a a little amount of money to a big amount of money. Sometimes you get what you pay for. And I leave my cameras up 365 days a year, uh, every day. And, and I just, you learn so much, it's not even funny. So I think if a guy's going to hunt public ground, it would be beneficial to have a camera in there if he can lock it in and, and be certain that he's not going to lose it. 
Yeah. I'll add to what you said, Matt, too. You know, with all the different people I've talked to with the Wired to Hunt podcast, you know, we kind of grill so many different people on this very type of topic. And I would say like 80% of people I talk to see the exact same thing you guys have both mentioned in that these deer are still visiting scrapes outside of that typical scrape period we think of. They're not digging up the ground as much maybe, but they're still checking that little licking branch in August or July. If they happen to be coming through, they'll sniff it. They'll kind of see you know, who's in the area, what's happening here. Um, so yeah, just like you, I throw my cameras up on scrapes as soon as that summer period kind of ends. You know, usually when velvet comes off, you get that shift from summer range to fall range. And that's when I've been doing, you know, shifting all my cameras to mock scrapes or scrapes or maybe not all, but a lot of them. And it's a great way, just like you said, Terry, to, to get that inventory once that shift happens. Um, hugely helpful. Uh, now, speaking of mock scrapes, though, could you elaborate, Terry, on exactly how you go about making those in your on your property or in the way that you do it? Well, if you if you have a property that you're intimate with and you've hunted it for several years, you you start to learn it and you know it pretty well as far as where the buck travel is going to be at. But again, and I mentioned this early on, I'm not afraid to go through and trim a bunch of overhanging limbs, you know, that, to eliminate that traffic from going to a scrape that I don't have a camera on, and then we'll create a, a mock scrape and I build them extremely big in size early. Uh, just so they make that visual contact. They know where it's at. They see it because the weeds are so tall. Now, if they see a, you know, a cleared out area, they're going to walk to it. And, and I take a weed eater and I actually go down to bare dirt because when you disturb that soil or you turn it over, it has a certain smell, a certain odor. And in addition to them laying an eyeball on it, then they also smell it and they're going to walk over to it and check it out. And uh, I just have always been adamant about creating our own scrapes. So we're trying to direct traffic. I may have a, a tree stand right there hanging. We may have a ground blind. We may have a box blind. But we want to try and push them to a certain area. And I think you can do that rather easily. If guys guide those deer to a scrape, you know, you may take a brush hog in the timber and just cut a little lane uh, a few hundred yards back in the timber at the end of that lane right before they hit a food plot have a mock scrape right there. So they're, you know, they almost got to stumble over it. So we're really adamant about this time of year going out there and maintaining. If you have rainfall, you're obviously going to have weeds growing up through it. So you got to hit it a couple of times. I've hit some of these scrapes three and four times already with a weed eater. It's battery operated weed eater. And, uh, you know, you try and maintain them just like you check your cameras. You do the same thing with your scrapes. Speaking of rain, I, I can't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was you guys. Um, I've heard about some people, you know, when you get into October, later October, when I think a lot of people think about maybe hunting scrapes or keying in on scrapes a little bit, I've heard people talk about hunting over scrapes or near scrapes just after a rain because they believe bucks will be more apt to go in there and try to freshen them up post-rain. Is that is that you guys or is that something you guys have ever seen or done or have a theory on? We, we can say with supreme confidence, if you're out there, and a rain event stops, and, and we're talking, you know, late October and all through the month of November. But, buddy, if you're in a tree and you're close to a scrape, pretty good chance he's going to get up and go over there and freshen it. We've had extremely good luck right after rainfall. And a lot of times we'll get wet. And now, again, you have the luxury of, of looking at a, a cell phone and watching that front. You can almost tell when it's going to pass, when the rain's going to stop. And, boy, if you can get up in that tree and be over the top of that scrape, there you have a, a really, really high chance of seeing a big mature deer go in there and freshen that scrape right after rain event is there any other time of year when you do key in on scrapes i mean at least for me 
you know, we've kind of we've kind of kind of wandered around it a little bit, but you know, there was I think, you know, a decade or two ago there was a lot of talk about hunting scrapes. And then maybe over the last ten years there's been research that came out that says, ah, well most of the scraping activity happens at night, so don't hunt scrapes. And then I feel like when you continue diving into it, looking at it, there do seem to be some hot spots when you can still have success, like in you just mentioned, when it rains or something like that. Um, is there any other specific time of year or situation when you would specifically set up with a scrape in mind as the reason to hunt a spot, or is it just those rain events? Absolutely. I think the end of October there, before they get with those first available estrus does, it's extremely crucial to be in and around or close to a scrape line. Uh, and we've seen that over the years and, and scrapes have a history, you know, all of a sudden they're really, really hot. They're really good. We talked about that before interpreting hot sign. They can be hot as a pepper for a little while, but boy, once those does come into estrus, the scrape activity starts to subside a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then as you get into the later parts of the season, you know, the rut is starting to trickle down The scrapes literally just dry up and kind of go away. So it's about knowing when to hunt them. And the end of October is really crucial. Uh, first part of November is really, really good. We've had extremely good luck in the mornings on that first week in November. We've had very good luck in the afternoons and evenings in the latter part of October. So hunting a scrape is it can be extremely productive, but I, I specifically urge everybody to put cameras on them. You know, if you got cameras on them, you'll know whether it's nighttime activity or whether it's daytime activity. If it's nighttime, then that deer is bedding somewhere away from there. If it's daylight activity, pretty good chance he's bedded very, very close. So you got to be careful about getting in and out of there. You don't want to bump him out of his bed. But uh, if you got a deer that's, you know, in that area and you know him pretty well and you get a history with him, then by all means, pound in on him and, and try and hunt him. Just don't want to bump him out. So in that regard, you don't want to set, if you know there's a scrape site, you know, say you're walking into your timber and, and you're hanging, a, you're hunting a stand of a morning during the rut. You see a big scrape. It's not like you're going to hang your camera on that, right? Because you want to hang it somewhere that you can get in and out easily. Wouldn't that be the case? I mean, you wouldn't want to hang it somewhere deep in the timber, right? It depends on the time of the year. If it's if it's getting close to the peak of the rut and you know those deer are up on their feet and moving, I would not be afraid to hang one in there because you're going to leave it in there for maybe four or five days or a week and you'll probably check that card and you're going to want to be there because it only lasts so long. That window of opportunity is pretty small. Uh, now, if you've got you know, an entire season, then obviously you're going to want to hang off of that a little bit. And again, it depends how intimate you are with that particular parcel. If it's public ground and you're worried about getting your camera stolen, you want to secure it. But I would not be afraid to go in there and hang it uh, you know, four or five days and then check that card and then go hunt it. Gotcha. And I think also, I think you would agree with us, Terry, right? You're more apt to have daylight activity at a scrape location if it's one of those that is back in the cover, right? I mean, I think lots of times that the scrapes that we see on the field edges are those ones that are being touched off, you know, after dark, unless you're in a super low pressure setting. Um, but w would you agree with that? Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of that nighttime activity is by younger bucks as well. You know, you, you know, particularly if you got four or five scrapes in a row, you know, and they're pretty close together. Yeah. You may get a mature deer in there that may hit one of them and he might hit two, but they just don't go down through there and make six or seven scrapes. That's those young deer. It's a year and a half old, a two-year-old, so on and so forth. So uh, I, I agree with you, though. So much of that happens at night, and you look at the sign, and you think, oh, my God, we got a lot of bucks in here, and I'm going to kill him right here. That's where the cameras come in so handy is being able to put a camera somewhere there 
figuring out whether it's nighttime activity, daytime activity, or whether it's small bucks or mature buck that's, that's actually making that sign. Speaking of that, small bucks or mature bucks, this is something I, you know, you get this question a lot. There's this, um, I think, relatively common belief that a big rub equals a big buck. Small rub could be any buck. Is that what you've seen too? Um, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you say. Yeah, that is true. You know, if you see a giant rub the size of your waist, pretty good chance it's a big deer that's making it. And if you see a, a two-inch diameter tree, it could be every deer in the woods hitting that one. But we've seen a lot of big deer hit small trees. You know, it's not saying they just rub big trees. Uh, but if you see a giant, giant rub, pretty good chance you're going to get fired up, get pretty excited about it. You know, Mark and I, to this day, when we see a fresh, giant rub that's 14, 15 inches in diameter or bigger, uh, by golly, you know there's a pretty pretty big uh, monster in there making that rub. That's kind of stuff that gets your, your heart pumping, that's for sure. <laughs> What? Yeah, that and those big wagon wheel scrapes, I'm telling you, if you get those big hub scrapes or wagon wheel spoke scrapes where every deer in the timber goes in there and, and uh, hits that scrape, those get you pretty excited as well. The hard part, like Matt mentioned a while ago, is getting in and out and trying not to disturb too much. Speaking of the cameras, and I've got a million questions here, I realize, sorry. Um, but when you're putting your cameras on scrapes, are you ever worried about spooking deer? You know, I'm always like, okay, how far do I put the camera right on the tree of the scrape? Or should I put it on a faraway tree up high, angled down? What do you think about that? Well, I guess it depends if you just ate a Casey's pizza and you're out there and you got all that <laughs> scent all over your hands and you're messing with your camera. You know, take a pair of either glo of rubber gloves or some, uh, you know, brown jersey gloves or something on your hands so you're not depositing too much scent. You may want to try and brush it in, and back cover is everything with a camera. You know, the bigger the tree to where the camera doesn't stand out, I think the better off you are. But you can always take a few limbs and create a little bit of back cover there where it's not so prevalent. Uh, but, you know, if you really want to know the accurate information, you sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and put it where you, you don't feel right about doing it. But, it, again, it depends on the time of the year. when they're, Right now, they're pretty sensitive. You know, so they're looking at everything, they're smelling everything. So you really got to be kind of cautious about going in on the right winds and checking them. We're adamant about doing things here, you know, kind of through the midday hours when you know they're bedded tight. And sometimes when it's warm like this, it takes an awful lot to push one up out of its bed. So you can get by with a little more intrusion. You don't want to make a practice of it, but you can get by with a little more. So I think this summertime period, uh, when you got warm temperatures, getting in and out to cameras is a little bit easier than than other times of the year. Uh, the the part you got to worry about is when you're sweating, you're depositing an awful lot of scent. You know the molecules are dropping off when you go in and out. So, it, you know you got to be kind of careful about that. Yeah, yeah, great point. What about tracks? We haven't talked about tracks at all, but do you pay attention to big tracks or trying to tell if it's a mature buck or anything like that? You know, that's a good question because Mark and I both still get really excited about big tracks because big track means big, big deer. What you don't know is how big the rack is on his head. You know, it right. might just mean fat deer. But, yeah, we get excited about big, big, giant tracks. And I say that because having went through several years of EHD, our big tracks have, have almost depleted. So now trying to get a, a big deer to seven, eight, nine years old has just become a, a real challenge for us. I, I don't think they were built for that. You know, it's with all the diseases that are going around between EHD and CWD and then all the secondaries that they contract by. If it's a deer that EHD didn't, you know, didn't wipe out, all of a sudden they may come up with a secondary disease that actually takes them out. So 
you know, our numbers are down really, really low compared to what we had a few years back. You know, we saw this thing, it was like a, a bell curve and, and we saw the best of the best and now we're seeing it go back down. So we're hoping that we'll hit some mid range here where we get those mature deer back. But in answer to your question, tracks always get us fired up. You see a big gigantic track with the dew claws back here at seven inches or eight inches. Yeah, we still get pretty fired up about it. Even your 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 uh, new lease in Illinois, you know, you didn't have cameras out on it yet. And the first thing you did was you looked to see what kind of tracks there were. You said, well, there's not a lot of tracks, but I'm seeing a lot of coyote tracks, you know. So, at, you know, just interpreting the sign, too, is a whole nother level, I guess, right? Yeah, and on that particular farm, it just so happened that we had a lot of rain and it was muddy along all around all the field edges and what have you, so you got to see a lot of tracks. And I cut on one farm, I cut one big track that got me all excited. On another farm, there were it was almost void of tracks, deer tracks I'm talking about, and it was all coyote tracks. So, you, you know, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, this farm is, <laughs> is not that good. And on the other farm, we're going to spend a little more time there. So it's, it's a matter of looking at it and saying, hey, if the deer tracks aren't here, the deer sign's not here. They're just not there. They're not going to magically move in, you know, a whole herd of them at a certain period in time. Uh, you know, there's a certain number of resident deer that stay there year round. And if they're not there, that's, uh, it's not a, a good outcome. That's probably a good tip for somebody that's going to check out a piece of property that they might be wanting to lease or maybe even buy. And, you know, if, if there's not history with pictures... You, you, all you have to go off of is sign, you know, and that's a big decision to make to lease a property or to buy one, you know, and so you're trying to use everything you have at your advantage. And I think one of the definitely one of the things that you would you look for is what kind of sign the farm has. You know, that's a good point. And in addition to that, because a deer herd is so cyclic, meaning, you know, you got pictures after pictures after pictures of deer at two and a half, three and a half, four and a half and what have you. And then all of a sudden, he kind of falls off the radar. You know, he either got shot or he might have died of EHD or something, or he just left the area. But it's such a cycle. You become intimate with those deer, and you want to you want to see them year after year after year, but it just doesn't happen. All of a sudden, the next crop comes up, and I'm talking maybe a five-year window here, where all of a sudden you have a new crop that's coming up, and you're trying to nurse them through, you know, and you want to get those deer to where they're four, five, and six, and it's just really a hard task uh, to do it year in and year out, raise big mature whitetails because, uh, you know, Mother Nature has her say and, and she shows you how small you really are and how humbling it can be to hunt each and every year and try and kill a mature deer. It's just, it's just not an easy task. But that's a really good point, Matt, about interpreting that sign and saying, do I have big deer here or not? Or how many deer do I have? What's the deer density on this particular parcel? And uh, if it's low then you certainly may not want to buy it, but it is cyclic. You know, because it's low one year, it may bounce back. And then again, if you've got a high deer density, doesn't mean that the next year it won't fall off a little bit. It depends on the diseases in that area. Makes sense. This, uh, this track thing is always really, uh, oh, what's the word? I don't know. Fascinating to me. Trying to, I feel like this, like woodsmanship is something that has been kind of lost in to some degree. I feel like, I mean, trail cameras are incredible. Love them. But some of these different technology advances that we have make it easier for us to kind of skip some things like paying attention to tracks or stuff like that. So it's kind of cool to try to go back in time a little bit and pay attention to like what our forefathers were were focusing on as hunters. Um, our 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 fathers. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> in your case. Um, 
but but something interesting that and again I, I don't have any good ideas myself I just hear other people and pass them along someone had told me um, about purposefully creating what he called like track traps I think um, where you know let's say there's a situation where you think a buck is bedding in some general region and you think he's feeding in some general region but you haven't been able to pinpoint exactly how he's getting from A to B um, and of course, you know, trail cameras can help you with this, but let's just hypothetically say you only have one trail camera and you can't cover all the potential avenues he might travel. So what this guy said was clear out, you know, if you can get in there on a rainy day when you're not going to make a lot of noise and your scent might get washed away and stuff, go in there and clear out a section of leaves right down to the bare dirt on every one of the potential trails along that food source where you think that buck might be coming out and then wait some number, handful of days go back in there when you can get in there and access without spooking the deer and stuff and check it. And hopefully you'll see those big tracks in the trail he's using most often or whatever it might be. It's just kind of an interesting idea that I thought was a, was a cool kind of throwback way to use tracks to help pattern bucks. I've never heard of that. I think that's a great idea. Um, unfortunately, because of the evolution of trail cameras, you, you know, that whole method kind of goes out the window just a little bit because you can simplify it by hanging a camera and then maybe moving that camera. Because if you're going through the effort of, of uh, clearing that area, you know, along that trail, you've deposited a little more scent than you, than you care to, and you don't even know you did it. So it can be adverse, uh, you know, more than helpful. You know, that, that track may be there, but now all of a sudden you got a lot of human scent in there. So you got to be conscious of that too. You don't want to run him out of there. For sure. That's the fine line we always have to walk, right? It's that weighing the risk versus reward of trying to gain intel versus not giving them intel, whether it be with trail cameras or check for tracks or scouting or whatever it is. That's like the question I'm always trying to ask myself as I'm sitting here thinking, okay, what's the risk of blowing things out versus the gain I could learn from whatever information is there? And that's the game, right? Usually well, I like we- to play it safe and <laughs> just not get, get too intrusive. Yeah. yeah, and we, we touched on it a while ago. It depends on the time of the year and how, you know, how tight they're bedded. I think this, like this warm weather we're experiencing right now, they stay, they stay pretty doggone tight. I mean, you literally got to almost step on top of them before they're going to bump up out of their bed. So it's a good time to get those cameras hung and just you got to be swift and get in and get out. Do it on the right wind. You know, if you got a south wind and you're, and you're trying to get in there, you make sure that you're not blowing it into the timber that you're going to hunt. And uh, guys, just got to be smart about it and not be lazy. You, you just can't be lazy when you're a deer hunter. That's the truth. Right there, that's one of the greatest pieces of advice when it comes to trying to harvest mature bucks, I think. Just don't be lazy. <laughs> it's a giant chess match, but the lazy guys, you know, are the ones that always say, oh, wow, I wish I could kill a big deer like that. Well, it, it just takes a little extra effort and a lot of time. Well, those guys usually shoot them out of the truck during the <laughs> season. <laughs> yeah, that is the unfortunate reality sometimes. Well, uh, anything else, Terry, that we haven't covered on this? Or Matt, either one of you? No, Terry no, covered it. I think those guys that are, you know, they're going in there and doing it the hard way, you know, hunting public ground and trying to interpret sign and, and trying to pack in and pack back out, It's that's a challenge. I mean, you, you know, my hat's off to all those guys to be able to do that and and be able to harvest a big deer. I think there's a lot of public areas that don't get hunted very hard. You know, I think everybody thinks that they're getting pounded when in reality we drive by a lot of these public areas and Mark and I, that's what we cut our eye teeth on. We hunted them for years. And uh, it, it just, I do not think they get, now maybe during the farm season they get pressured pretty hard, 
But during the archery season, there's a lot of spots that just don't get pressured very, very much. It probably yeah. goes back to your point of don't be lazy. I, you know, I think things in just general in today's society become so much easier. It's, everything's about convenience. You probably don't have the amount of guys that are willing to go back into the timber or truck back in there. You know, guys like Mark, you know, Kenyon, and uh, they're probably a, more rare than they used to be. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's 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 I think almost more mentally challenging than anything because you have so many hunts that get blown up or the risk you think even hunting, you know, when I hunt private, but there's like eight other guys that hunt the same private parcel as me, you know, just the mental like strength it takes just to say, well, I'm, I'm going to try anyways. I'm going to sit here and the whole, every time I hear an ATV or something, I'm like, oh, please no. But I think that applies to a lot of public land hunters too. And it's just, you know, like you said, not, you know, being willing to put in the hard work, to put in the time, know that it's not going to work out most of the time, but still get in there and check it out. Because um, to Terry's point, I would I'd venture to believe that a lot of people just avoid public land because they assume that it's pounded, that they assume there's tons of people in there. And in lots of cases, yes, it is. But there definitely are those sweet spots that you can get into, whether it be because you charge in there farther than anybody else or just you happen upon a spot that no one else is thinking about. So it's possible, no doubt about it. Well, I think one of the misnomers when people watch our stuff, whether it was the DVDs or television, is that that we have a big deer behind every stump and every tree, and that's the farthest thing from the truth. I know Matt had a just a horrid season last year, and, and we struggled to even find a shooter last year. So we may hunt 30, 40, 50, 60 days in a row before we even get a shot. And uh, I, I, I just think people, you know, if you want to kill a big one, you just got to put in the time. Now, obviously, most guys can't do that. If he's a blue-collar guy and he's got weekends, yeah. then you've only got a certain amount of time you can go out there and actually harvest an animal. Then you got to capitalize. When the shot, opportun- shot opportunity comes, you got you got to make sure you put the shot in the right spot. That's where I failed last season. <laughs> that one shot I opportunity, I blew. <laughs> That's the worst, but that is, it's so true. You need to capitalize, but that's a whole nother podcast episode, I think, to talk about about that topic. So another interesting topic here covered. Hopefully this is helpful uh, to all of you guys listening that were curious about this question. Thank you, Terry, for for sharing so much of your your insight there. You're quite welcome. I I hope we help, you know, the next man or lady or, or child. I hope we help somebody go out there and harvest a monster this fall. Absolutely. So a couple quick updates before we go. If you'd like your own question answered on a future episode, head to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. You can submit your very own question. We'll listen to it. We'll air it on the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll do our darndest to give you a helpful answer. And, uh, of course, then also subscribe to the audio version of the podcast if you want to be able to listen to this on the go. You can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. And then if you want to watch the video version uh, – you can go over to the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel. And uh, Matt, I'm sure you've got some more updates on the Drury front too. Absolutely. So uh, make sure if you go to the YouTube channel to check out the video, subscribe to the channel, Drury Outdoors, and check out all the DOD TV videos that we have up. We're doing a lot of original hunts that we're editing that have never been seen before on TV or obviously we've stopped doing the DVD. So this is the place to get that new content. Um, we have a really cool segment called killing it in the kitchen that Taylor does very cool. Gives you recipe ideas on video, uh, for venison, turkey, that type of thing. And then as always check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're going to be coming live 
a lot this fall, um, doing a reconics phase breakdown, each phase kind of giving Mark and Terry's perspective as to what's happening during the phase, what they had seen, what they're noticing, kind of that most recent information and trying to succeed on, on taking those, uh, that information and, and deriving some tactics from it. So be sure to check us out. And uh, as always, make sure you're safe out there this fall. For sure. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Good luck out there. Peace. Thanks, guys.